Welcome to Relevant Faith Church this morning. My name is Mike Womer. I am the lead pastor here at Relevant Faith, and we are so excited that you have joined us for worship. A lot of what they, what they talk about and, and, and what they're doing um, fits real well in the series in which I, we, have, we have started preaching, and we've talked about this series called Discover Your Story, and the goal is to really discover who we are in the dreams that God has given us. And we started last week where we talked about um, and we dissected the idea of why sometimes our dreams seemingly die. And we talked a little bit about how to shut down the dream killers in, in our lives, the people who would speak and, 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 and even criticize the things that we're doing, even while we're doing them and where we're doing them, and then recognize the resources that we already have instead of trying to do it some other person's way or do it another way, doing it the way that God has ordained for us to do it with the gifts and the abilities and talents that we actually have. And then also valuing the victories. You know, and we talked about how David, we used David's story for all of this. And we talked about how he knew that he could, de- he could defeat Goliath, not just because he had faith, but because he, as a shepherd, just killed a lion and a bear. And that, that celebrating that victory, and he reminded the king, King Saul, about that victory and said, I, I will win this battle simply for that, that reason alone. I've already killed a lion and killed a bear, I'll kill this thing too. You know, so he celebrated the victories that he had and he valued them. And it ultimately is what led to fulfilling the dream that God had for him. And so today for a few minutes, I'm going to talk to you about having courage when it comes to your dream, when it comes to the vision and the dream that God has given you for your life or the call that you're, you're doing. And, and if, you, if you hear stories like this, and it's, it's so almost impossible for us in the, in, in the Western society to relate to 700 people living in a space made for 300. We don't even like to share the bathroom with the four people in our house, much less 70 people on our floor, Right? And to, to comprehend that is almost, I, I think it's virtually impossible for us to picture that and then, un, and then even take it further to even think about living that way, right? And so it's, it, it, but then there's people like the Post family who, against anything that makes any kind of normal sense, decide they're going to move across the ocean to, to minister to these, type, these people, and so fulfilling a dream that God gave them and having the courage to do it. So it really fits that you're here today and it fits that you shared today and it fits what, what God is doing. And so oftentimes when I think about courage and the courage to dream, I think about childhood nights when you were a child and the shadows that would be on the wall or the boogeyman that would be in the closet or the scary things that make noise. You remember those moments as a kid? There, there was a noise you didn't understand, or there was a shadow on the, on the wall that scared you, or, or you just had this thought that there's just this monster under my bed, or there's a boogeyman in my room. And, and conquering this, this boogeyman in your room was actually pretty easy back then, because it was all it took was a holler of mom, or mommy, or daddy, and one of them would come in, and, and you would get this peek underneath the bed, or this reassuring kiss, or a nightlight, and... It was gone until, of course, the next night, right? But there is this always this reassuring feeling when mom or dad would come into the room. And now, of course, that we're all grown up, we've defeated all of our fears, right? 
We're actually, it's very simple now to walk out and do the things that God has called us to do and the dreams that we have for our lives, right? I'm glad somebody is, is, is still fearful because the reality is even as adults, there's those thoughts and those fears and those things that, that hold us back. You know, the shadows of the walls now, shadows on the walls now as an adult don't necessarily disappear with the morning. Matter of fact, you wake up thinking about them. And when you holler for help, sometimes all you really hear is yourself. And you wonder, is there anyone else listening to me? Is there anyone else around me? And then when promises are broken or things that you felt like were going to happen go unfulfilled, you wonder, is God even hearing me? Do you even know that I exist? Or in my jovial way, because this is just the way that I am. The way that I am on Sunday morning when I preach is the way that I am every other day of my life, and the way that I speak is just the way that I am. And so I tend to find humor in moments when I'm concerned, and I remember one time literally calling out to God, and I remember saying, hey, do you hear me? Do you know that I exist? I'm talking to you. I don't feel like I'm here. You're hearing me. And then I go to Chris Tucker in a movie said, do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? Because something's not connecting. And so we have those moments and, and they bring fear. And so what I want to share with you this morning for a few minutes is this, there, that there is a source of renewed courage to follow the dreams that God has for your life. There is, a, there is an amount of faith waiting to be tapped into to walk out what God has called you to walk out. And so the idea this morning for the next few minutes is that you'll be able to drink it in deeply, that you'll be able to experience this source of courage, that you'll be able to tap into this, this, this well of faith that is available to you so that you can walk out God's call for your life. I read this, this story online and I, I, was, I was so taken by the way that it communicated a thought that I had that I'm going to share it with you and just kind of read it to you. And it said, the story said there's a young woman, eight months heavy with a child, waddles into her mother's house, flops, and if you've been a pregnant mom, you totally understand this thought, flops on the sofa, kicks off her shoes, props up her puffy, swollen feet on the coffee table, and groans, I don't think I can make it. Wise from the years, the mother picks up a photo album, sits down beside her daughter. She opens the album to photos of her children in diapers and ankle-high walking shoes. Slowly, the two turn the memory-filled pages. They smile at the kids blowing out candles at birthday parties and sitting in front of Christmas trees. And as the mother sees yesterday, the daughter sees tomorrow. And for just a moment, the daughter is changed. And here and now becomes the there and then. Her child is born. She sees the first stumbling step taken. She hears the first word that's only discernible by mommy. She places the shiny black patent leather shoes on the stockinged feet and usually using some kind of sticky device sticks a bow or ribbon to the head of the nearly bald but precious child. And a transformation occurs. The pain in her back is now overshadowed by joy, by the joy approaching. And the hand that rubbed her neck now rests on her stomach. For the first time that day, she smiles. 
I like that story, that illustration, because it shows that the pain of what you're dealing with today can be overshadowed by the joy of what is coming tomorrow. Now, you find yourself in a situation where it's like, I, I, I'm, I'm ready to, to see more or to do more or to experience more, but there's also this fear inside of me that holds me back from seeing more and doing more and experiencing more. And it's because we start to look at these things, I just don't think that I can make it. I just don't think that I can do anything. And when you hear a, a story of like a family like the Post and you say, yeah, there's no way I could ever do that. Okay, if I'm going to be honest, and Carol has shared this very, very honestly and transparently here before, and some of you may have heard it and some of you may have not, but she dealt with a lot of fear and anxiety before she ever left. But I, I would stand and, 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 and trust in saying that this is true, that this has probably been one of the most exciting and exhilarating and greatest experiences of her life over the last several years, several months. And so there's this, there's this waiting joy that comes from stepping out with courage and tapping into that courage that you have available to you. And so I'm going to talk to you this morning uh, a familiar story that's found in the book of Luke, chapter 9. And I want to talk to you for just a few more minutes about these courageous dreams and conquering those things that hold you back. You know, I'm going to tell a poetic version of this story before I read the scripture because it was just, it's just got a, a really cool, cool feel to it. And you might recognize the story as I read this to you. But again, it's something I found online that connected really well to what I wanted to speak and so this is the story that you can find in Luke 9, told in a very creative, poetic way. Four people snake their way up the mountain. The trip has been long, the hour is late, the level place on the hillside is reached, and they sit down. They're tired, their muscles hurt. The grayness in the twilight settles over them like a soft cloth. The quartet of pilgrims long to sleep, but only three do. The fourth sits in the shadows, face skyward. The stars wink at their maker. Winds blow over the, over the shoulders of their designer. Cooling his neck, he slips off his sandals and rubs his sore feet and reflects on the, wilder, the wildness of it all. A God with sore legs, holiness with hunger, divinity with thirst, a world maker made weary by this world. His thoughts drift homeward, Nazareth, how good it would be to be home again. The memories surface so easily. Sawdust covered workbenches, friends stopping to talk, dinner table laughter, wrestling with his brothers, the synagogue, the house, the home, what I'd give to go home. But Nazareth would never be home again. They tried to kill him the last time he was there. Neighbors, friends, teachers, schoolmates, they squeezed the stones intended for his body. Even his brothers and sisters considered him insane. They wanted to hide him to put him away, they were ashamed to be known as his family. No, Nazareth can never be home again. What about Galilee? He could go back to Galilee. There are crowds that listen. There are people that followed, but he shook his head. And as long as I made them bread, they would follow. As long as I said what they wanted to hear, they would follow. He remembered the crowds as they turned away. He heard jeering. 
He felt their rejection. No, I can never go back to Galilee. He thinks of Jerusalem. She offers no comfort. He knows what she will do to him. A foreboding pain stabs his wrists. He winces at the slicing of his brow. He sees the world around him growing darker and darker. My God, a premonition inside him cries. He shakes his head and breathes a staggered breath. His thoughts return to the present. He plucks a shoot of grass, puts it into his mouth, and sits in the shadow of his fear. He looks at his followers as as they are asleep. They have no idea. They just can't understand. He speaks of suffering. They think of conquering. He speaks of sacrifice. They think of celebration. He's an artist painting for the colorblind. He's a singer singing for the deaf. They nod their heads and clap their hands. They think they see. They think they hear, but they don't. They can't see. No one sees. Part of him knew it would be like this, and part of him knew it would be, didn't know it would be so bad. When I think about the poetic version of Luke chapter 9, I think about the courage that even Jesus had to have. We find in Luke chapter 9, verse number 28, the Bible says, About eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly, two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared and began talking with Jesus. They were glorious to see and they were speaking about his exodus from this world, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. Peter and the others had fallen asleep. When they woke up, they saw Jesus' glory and the two men standing with him. As Moses and Elijah were starting to leave, Peter, not even knowing what he was saying, blurted out, Master, it's wonderful for us to be here. Let's make the three shelters as memorials, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But even as he was saying this, a cloud overshadowed them, and terror gripped them as the cloud covered them. And verse 35, the voice, then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son my chosen one. Listen to him. So there were some things that took place on this mountain. The disciples fell asleep. And you ever find yourself like fall asleep and wake up and you're kind of in the middle of the story and you're lost? That's Peter, but Peter found himself in that condition quite a bit. He was the open mouth, insert foot kind of guy. And he opens his eyes and he sees this glorious moment And then just starts making assumptions and just blurts out thoughts and says, this is wonderful. We should be here. Not understanding the pain of what was going on because he was sleeping. He didn't hear the story. And so there's a couple of things I want you to to gather from this passage of Scripture. And I'm going to be brief right here because our time is close. But number one, and in your notes, if you want to follow along, you're welcome to do so. There's something you have to understand about having and walking out with courage when it comes to the dreams and vision that God has given you is number one, Jesus sat down. Verse 28, about eight days later, Jesus took Peter, John, and James up on a mountain to pray. Jesus got away from the crowds, away from what he was doing, and he sat down to pray. No, far too often when it comes to the vision and the dream that God has given us, we're too busy trying to figure out how to make it happen instead of just sitting down and saying, God, give me the courage to walk out the path that you've laid. 
You know, there were mo- of course there were moments that he would he stood tall, and there were hours of splendor in his ministry, and there were dynamic days when lepers were healed, and then dead people were raised, and people worshipped. But those days, they came, but they also went. And today, in this moment, he finds himself in isolation. Speaking of suffering, the mountain of transfiguration, as it's called, is the moment that takes place before Jesus starts to actually usher and walk into his ultimate destiny, which would be to die for our sin. And so Jesus said to, in all of his teaching, to love others as you love yourself. And too often we think that key, the key to that phrase is to love others. And it's important to love other people. It's important to, to just be about others and bear the weight and the burden of their lives and, and love them and minister to them and nurture them and meet their needs and those things. But we missed the second half of that teaching that Jesus gave. He said to love others as yourself. It's virtually impossible to love others if you don't first love yourself. And so I think in this journey of life, in this time when it talks about being cur- having courage to walk out the dreams that God has given you, you have to sit down at some point in time and, and love yourself. Take care of yourself. That's why I said what I said in, in worship. Can, can we just take this moment to make it about you? Because that's not selfish. People think, oh, well, if I do this for me, it's selfish. It's not selfish because how can you possibly do for others if you yourself are broken, if you yourself are hurting, if you yourself are exhausted? How can you ever be something for someone else? There's an importance to being healthy personally. I I tried this. I literally tried for years to work my tail off to build a church, to love people, to meet needs, to cast vision, to just be all that I could have to be as a pastor for the people that I love so dearly. And I found myself exhausted. I found myself hurting and broken because I didn't take care of me. And you can only do that for so long before you begin to shut down. And we look at our children and say, oh, I, got, I have to take care of my children. I'm living for my children. And I, I, and I get the sentiment and I, I embrace the idea, but let me tell you, if you're living for your children, you're missing what God wants you to do. You raise your children. They're his kids. He gave them to you for a short season. In the grand scheme of life, I had my daughter 18 years, not even really 18 full years. I had her for 17 and change. Now she belongs to him. I still have control of a few things because she has my car and it's my insurance, so I have that. But that's all I have left. She's off doing her own thing, and she's thriving and growing and, 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 and far exceeding anything I ever imagined that she would be at this point in time in her life. If I still lived for her, then where would I be for me? And if where I am for me is not healthy, how can I be there for for others? Jesus said to love others as you love yourself. You've got to find that place where you can sit down. I mean, when you fill the tank in your car, you know you can drive a certain number of miles. If you're anything like me, you've tested that. How far can I go? You know, I'm the guy who... When I see, the, I, see, I see that I'm getting low, I tap the button to see how many miles I have left till empty tank. And then I'm like, oh, yeah. I got at least another day and a half of driving before I have to get gas, even though my light is on. Drives my wife nuts. 
she, she, she can't live that way. But I'm like, I wonder how far I can go. I learned that with my truck. I literally ran out of gas going into the gas station. I knew exactly how many miles I could go with my truck. But here's the thing. If you run out of gas a little too soon before you get to the gas station, now you're stuck. Yeah, I've been there too. Had to make the phone call and say, man, I'm stuck. I got no gas. And you're like, man, you're so, so stupid. Go to the gas station. I literally, it's like, oh, I passed the gas. Oh, that's all right. I have enough to get back to the next gas station. But if we deplete all the fuel in, that, in our gas tank, we get stuck. It's the same thing spiritually. You have, to keep your, you have to keep your soul full. You have to keep it healthy because if you deplete that, you run out of gas. And if you run out of gas, guess where you're going? Nowhere. And at this time of year, you run out of gas, your engine stops running, which means your heat stops pumping, and now you're cold and going nowhere. This is, a, this is a spiritual application. You have got to continually keep yourself full of God and his presence and his love and his grace in order to accomplish the dream that he has for your life. The moment you step away from that is the moment that you begin to fail every single day. And not the failure isn't what's wrong. It's the failure in being stuck versus failing. I have this philosophy of life. I fail often. I just fail forward. I learned that this is a dumb thing to do. Don't do that again. Let's do something else. And I just keep on living that way because if you otherwise, we get stuck where we are and we never grow and we never become what God wants us to become. And then we get one day we wake up and it's five years and it's like, how am I still in the exact same spot I was? Jesus himself sat down to pray. I believe that as you keep your spirit full, the inspiration that you gain from your time with God blesses every activity on that day. The, it, it makes everything flow smoother. It brings answers to your thought processes much quicker. And, the, and it brings resolution to conflicts. And it, it does all these things. It has the ability to do all these things that we just need every day of our lives. You have to be able to sit down. Jesus sat down. Number two. You have to have this understanding that sitting down changes you. Jesus sat down to pray. And the Bible says in verse 29, As he was praying, the appearance of his face was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white. His appearance was transformed. He was changed because he sat down. What happened on this day on the mountain is the glory of God fell on Jesus in such a way that he was physically changed. It wasn't just like when you say, oh, the appearance is the, the, the Greek word in this literally means what you saw changed. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that again because some of y'all missed that point and it was a really good one. And so since a good preacher knows when he has a good point, I'm going to say it again so y'all can get it really good this time. When you sit down with God, and when you sit down and spend that time with God, it changes you. It changes you in such a way, it's what people see that changes you. His appearance changed. The physical makeup of Jesus changed. The clothing he was wearing started dazzling. His face was, the Bible says, his countenance changed. That they looked and they could see an actual physical change because he had sat down with God. See, we often talk about how prayer changes 
things. And we talk about sitting down with him and how that changes what's on the inside. And this is true and it's important because God does a work from the inside out. But at some point in time, you're sitting down with God changes what people see. They change, it changes what people hear. If you really want to know if you're really connected to God in a good way, just think about what comes out of your mouth. Think about the language that we use or, the, or the, how negative or positively we speak or think about how we respond in stressful situations. That's how you really know if you've been changed. And that only comes from that time of sitting with him. There's a noticeable difference in the one who has spent time in the presence of God and the one that has not. You can see it. And the point of Jesus taking Peter, James, and John was to go and pray. But what did they do? Verse 32 says, Peter and the others fell asleep. Now here's what's really interesting, and I had to do some study, and I actually had to inquire of some, some people who have been in the Word much, 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 much longer and deeper than I have to, to get some understanding here. But when we think about this, Peter, and it's, it's, this is really interesting, and I wish I had more time because this is, this is some deep stuff right here. There are two instances that these th same three people fell asleep. The first one was on the Mount of Transfiguration here in Luke. The second one was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying. But the, here's the thing, they were two different sleeps. That's, what I, that's, that's the part that rattled me a little bit. When they, the Bible says that they fell asleep, this sleep that they fell was a spiritual sleep. It wasn't just a physical, I'm tired. In the garden, it was physical, I'm tired, and I went and took a nap. Here they fell asleep because they spiritually were exhausted. And so it wouldn't necessarily be entirely accurate to say they lazily missed something while they were sleeping. You could ask the question that while they were sleeping, what might they have seen? What might they have heard? That's why it's so important to, to have that time to sit with Jesus because the things that you will see and the things that you will hear are powerful. And if you, if you, if you miss out, if all you're doing is saying, oh, I checked my checkbox of my five minutes with Jesus today, then you're missing a whole lot of what he wants to say and what he wants to do. You are. And that's a starting spot. Don't get me wrong. If you've never prayed, start there. Start with five. Start with ten minutes. But man, I tell you what, if you've been serving God for any length of time and you're still at five and you're still at ten minutes, let me tell you something. You're just like Peter. You're going to wake up and just shout out your mouth something you see that has no, con no relevance to what actually took place. There's this awakening that needs to take place in order to follow after and have the courage to follow the dreams that God has given you. This awakening only comes from time with the king. Five minutes ain't going to do it. You know what five minutes of time is going to get you? Five minutes of blessing. Five minutes of courage. Five minutes of vision. Five minutes of what you can see. Five minutes of what you can hear. I tell you what, five minutes ain't enough. I don't sit and talk to nobody for five minutes. Nobody. Hey, can I have a... If I text you and say, hey, you got five minutes, you better make sure you got 30. Because that's all I know. So five minutes is not enough. I can't get anything across in five minutes. It takes me five minutes just to formulate what I want to say for the next 20 minutes. We've got to grow into this place where we're sitting down with Jesus, understanding that it changes us. It gives us the courage. They, they missed the entire conversation about the resurrection of Jesus. 
That's what they missed in that, that moment when they were sleeping. That's a pretty important thing to miss. And they missed it because they were spiritually sleepy. How many people are spiritually sleepy today? And what are you missing because of it? Here's the good thing, though. Okay, Even for those that are spiritually sleepy, even when you've missed things, God brings these things back around. He gives us another chance. Thankfully, he gives us a lot of other chances. But Peter would recall this moment later, and it would become one of the most powerful moments recorded in, in his writings in 2 Peter. He would recall the resurrection, the Mount of Transfiguration, all that he saw and all that he experienced. He would then recall it at that time, and it would be powerful. But I believe that in order to truly see God move, we need to be admit and be willing to be changed. That's what Jesus was about when he was sitting with the Father. Be changed. Your mind, your will, your emotions. God, change our soul. That's the cry. That's if you really truly want to see great things happen in your life and see God use you in ways that you could never have imagined, that's part of your prayer has got to be, God, change my soul. Because your soul is made up of your mind and your will and your emotions. And the only way to really truly see God move is when those three things are connected to him. That's why I pray the way I pray before I preach. God, I, I decrease so that you increase. I truly want that. Because if all you get from me is what you get from me, it's entertainment at best. But when God is the one doing it, it, has, it might have some staying power. This transfiguration experience was what Jesus needed to face what was, come, what was to come. This change is sitting down with Jesus, sitting down with God, is what he needed in order to face the cross. What he needed to have the courage to walk out what was going to be the most painful experience in human, in, in, ever known to humanity. And it wasn't just painful physically, it was also painful mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. How many of you experienced pain in your life that wasn't physical, but that was mental? Or that was emotional? Or that was spiritual? It's all a part of it. You can't separate any of them. And so in order to develop this courage to dream, you have to stay in the presence of Jesus. You can't forsake it for anything. I, I love my daughter text my wife last night. It was last night or this morning? Last night. And it was there over at a pastor's kids retreat, and Maya is there as a counselor, which is crazy to me. She's counseling at a, a whole bunch of other pastor's kids. And she texts my wife and says, oh, I love the presence of God. That's what she told her. It's like, there's, there's, cause there's no better place to be. And when you feel him, when you feel him in that great moment, it gives you the courage to keep going. Gives you the courage to walk out the dreams that he has for your life. Oh my gosh, I gotta go. Oh, I looked at the time just now. Whew. All right, I still I gotta finish this. That's all right. So how do we stay in that place? We're gonna give I'm gonna give you a couple of things to make it practical. Matter of fact, worse if you want you make your way up here. I know that will help me to close, actually close, and not Pentecostally close. If you don't know what Pentecostal closing is, go to a Pentecostal church one time and listen to the pastor say, I'm closing, and then look at your watch. And then look again when he's done. It'll be every bit of 25, 30 minutes. So how do we stay in this place, this place where we're, we're sitting with God, and we're being changed because of that time that we're with him. We have, there's, there's two things. I'm just going to give you two things that will help 
bring this to a practical application level. Number one, you have to believe with expectation. It's not enough just to believe. You have to believe with expectation. What does that mean? I have to believe in a way that I expect for God to move. So I know what you're thinking. Thanks a lot, Pastor. That's a pretty ambiguous idea, and it's pretty generic, and it's a broad thing to say, and you're right, so I'm going to break it down for you, okay? Proverbs chapter 16, 3 says, commit your actions to the Lord and your plans will succeed. If what I do honors God, then everything that I do will have success. Matthew 6, Jesus said, seek the kingdom of God above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. What's the key to that? Live righteously. Seek God, live righteously. You cannot live an unrighteous life and expect to have everything that you need, period. Don't shoot the messenger. It's just the message. Psalm 37, verse 4 and 5 says, Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you your heart's desires. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him, and he will help you. And for in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, the Bible says, For Jesus, the Son of God, does not waver between yes and no, he is the one whom Silas, Timothy, and I preach to you, and as God's ultimate yes, he always does what he says. Verse 20, for all God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes. That's what I love about that. A resounding yes. It's emphatic. He promised you some things, and he said yes. And through Christ, our amen, which means yes, or so be it, ascends to God for his glory. So when the Bible says that all his promises are yes and they are amen, it means it's already been done. Just say thank you. That's really what that means. It's already been done. Just say thank you. Because that's how he, that's the, that's the God that we serve. It's very simple. Expect it because he said it. Why? How can I expect God to move on my behalf? Because he said he would. I mean, think about your, I, I, this is the, these are the greatest correlations, I, I believe, when it comes to understanding God and understanding the things that he has said. When you are a parent and you have told your child, you can have this, they expect for you to give it to them. Am I right? And if you don't, they're going to let you know about it, right? I, my kids have. My son, got a, he got a memory like an elephant. Doesn't forget anything. Dad, you said this. And I'm like, no, I didn't. He's like, yeah, and here's the thing with my son. I'm, if he says I said it, it's a better than 95% chance I actually said it, even if I don't remember it. Because there's this expectation. Why? Because Dad said I can do this. Dad said I can have this. Kids expect it from their parents. You are a child of God. Expect it from your father. He said you could, so say he, just say, okay, thank you. We don't have to make this more difficult than it needs to be. He said it, he meant it, accept it. Number two, and this is the last part I'll share. Refuse to let go of God's dream for your life. Refuse to let it go. Refuse to let it go. See, the problem is we become so broken, so hurt, so damaged, that we let go of the things that God is doing and he has spoken to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 through 25. The Bible says, let us hold tightly 
without wavering to the hope we affirm. For God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of good of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of the return of his return is drawing near. He says, hold tightly without wavering. Grab a hold of it and don't let go. There's a, there's a phrase in there that hold tightly is what I want to draw your attention to for just a moment. Abraham and Sarah held tightly to their dream that Abraham would be the father of many nations. That phrase, hold tightly, is taken from the Greek, and it means, it's a compound word, it's two words, kata and echo, is the two words that are in there. The first word, kata, carries this, this idea that, that something that comes downward, it's this idea that it was dropped on you. And you can say that this word actually carries a, a force of something that comes down so hard, it's so heavy. Have you ever tried to catch anything heavy that fell from a high distance? And it drops your whole body down when you do so? It's kind of that, that thought process. Something that is overpowering and something that is dominating to the point of the fact that it, it actually drops you down when it, when it lands in your hands. And when this force arrives, what it does is it actually conquers and it, it immediately begins to influence what's going on. So in that moment, if you catch something from up high, it brings you all the way down. That force brings you down. That's what that means. So when he says hold tightly, when you wrap a hold of something in such a way that you are now influencing whether or not this thing ever gets away from you. The only way it gets away is when you let go of it. That's why he said that that's why Abraham held tightly and held fastly to what he was promised. And so the second part of that word is the word echo, which actually just simply means it, it's, a, it means it's possession, taking ownership. It's the picture of someone who has searched for one particular thing in his life, and after years of seeking, after years of searching, he finally finds the object of his dreams, and he rushes forward, and he seizes it, and he holds it tightly. He wraps his arms around that object, and he says, this belongs to me. That's the image that God is giving you when it comes to the dreams that he's given you for your life. Grab a hold of them in such a way that it's a celebration of, I can't wait to walk this out. That's what David did with Goliath. That's what Abraham and Sarah did with the, the promised son Isaac. And when, they, when these two words are put together, it, mit, it literally means to embrace permanently and it means to embrace tightly. So if you ever want to see your God-given dreams come to pass, this is the attitude that you have to have. You wrap your arms around that word of, from God and never stop believing and never stop pursuing the dream until it comes to pass. I mean, that was, Jacob was so desperate when it came to his time with God that he said, God, I am not letting go of you until you bless me. I will fight you all night long. God's like, man, this dude will not let go. I just got to bust his hip. And he did. He bust, he popped his hip. According to scripture, he popped his hip out of joint. You can't fight no more when you don't have a hip. But he changed his name from Jacob to Israel. And 
what took place over the next several, even over the next several thousand years is a result of one man who said, I refuse to let go. It's the same word in Hebrew as Greek. It's the same exact definition. Do not let go until you've seen it come to pass. I read this. This, this was an interpretation. It could be interpreted this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. It says, let us hold fast to our confession, tightly wrapping our arms around it, embracing it with all our might, rejecting every attempt, anyone who tries to steal it from us. And when you do this, tomorrow's dream will become today's courage.